Thanks for pressing play. What you're about to hear is a very big deep dive into category design, community building, and how to start a company with nothing and become a category leader in seven years and a whole lot more. You see, our guest is my buddy and uh, one of the B2B tech entrepreneurial marketing guys that I admire the most right now. His name is Sangram Vajri, and he is the co-founder of Terminus and the author of a Wall Street Journal bestselling book called Move, The Four-Question Go-To-Market Framework. So the book's called Move. It's out now. The Four-Question Go-To-Market Framework. And um, this is a very big startup marketing conversation. We touch on things like how to avoid the SaaS valley of death. Ooh. (laughs) How to build a scalable marketing and sales model. How you can create community and point of view leadership. How to leverage your competition to build your own category like Sangram did. And we get super tactical about creative ways to incite your sales force to greatness and why creating an awards event is a powerful tool in the category design tool bag and much, much more. Also, pay special attention to Sangram's idea on the power of creating frameworks because I think you'll get into it. All right. (laughs) My friends at Halloapp, H-A-L-L-O-A-P-P.com, are the first real relationship app. If you're looking for a real place to connect with your real friends in the digital world where you're not the product and you're in real privacy, check out Halloapp.com or search for Halloapp on your app store of choice. Also, Category Pirates is now a top 10 business newsletter. And uh, it's sort of like um, the HBR, if the HBR was written for and by pirates. So check out our newsletter, Category Pirates, at CategoryPirates.com. Now, hey-ho, let's go. This is Lockheed Marketing, the podcast that helps you develop the lens for what makes legendary marketing legendary. Hosted by Christopher Lockhead, three-time CMO, godfather of category design, and a high school dropout, who the Marketing Journal calls one of the best minds in marketing, and The Economist calls off-putting to some. Sangram, so great to see you, brother. I love it, love it, being with you again, talking about it. Remember, like last time was in August when you and I took a trip and walked around as we were shooting our documentary, so it feels like ages. Yes, the uh, walking, talking, parking lot documentary we did. (laughs) (laughs) It will come out at some point. We're just still waiting on it, but it was a lot of fun, and I will never forget uh, the amount of generosity you had in terms of your time and commentary and everything that you did. So I can't wait to jump into our conversation today. Well, you know how I feel. I, I, I think you're one of the most uh, important marketers in our world today, and I'm glad we're friends. And um, I'm stoked to learn from you and, uh, and to do anything I can to support you and your efforts. I think you're doing great work, Sangram. Hey, man. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, as I said, like, Every time the number one question I get more than anything, I've got too many questions in my life, but the one question I get, like, why did you put that particular quote of Christopher Lockhead on the front cover? So I can't wait to tell you about that. Okay. So tell me about it. So, so you put a quote from me saying, I love the guys, but I hate the book. And we'll, we'll talk about why that's the case. Uh, and you put a, a, a positive quote from Jeff Moore, right? Uh, on the cover of your yep. book. 
And so yeah. tell me about what has transpired, because uh, really we haven't talked much since the book came out. We, we haven't. We, we have just like around it. And then you and I did an event just talking about on the launch week about it and had the most people show up because it was like, hey, let's, you know, let's hear the guys who disagree. Because, you know, in the world that we live today, Chris, I think you and I both know that everybody feels like they're walking on eggshells. They, they can't say anything. Every, everything is too has to be politically correct. Everything has to be in agreement or like, you know, you're my enemy kind of thing, right? You know, people can have, I think, forgotten a, a, a good way to discourse. And it's okay. Two people can have a completely two different opinions. And that's the point of being people. Uh, otherwise, we'll be animals eating each other, right? There's a point of being people is that. So I feel, and I think you recognize that as well, that I feel that by having your quote and Jeffrey Moore's quote and one positive, one negative, I think I'm trying to make a, a uh, like an open hand gesture to the world saying that, look, here are two guys who love their work, who people would know that we love uh, and admire each other's work, but are willing to put each other's name on the line to say that, hey, look, you know what? I have a difference of opinion on it, and that's okay. That's perfectly okay. And uh, so every time people read this book, uh, they the first, hey, I love this. I have a question about this. But before I ask any questions in the book, I want to ask, why did Christopher Lockett hate your book? And tell me more about it. So I always tell about you, and then I always talk about why, and it's a beautiful conversation. So when somebody says to you, hey, why did you put a quote from this guy on your book saying, I love the guys that hate the book? What, what, what do you, what's the answer you give people? Cause you might be, well, you, I, to the best of my knowledge, Sangram, and, and you know, I haven't read every fucking book in the world, but you're the only business book author I can think of uh, that I've heard of that put a negative quote on the front of their book. <laughs> yeah, it's proud. And I, I, I typically try to pull people around it and they're like, yeah, they've never heard it, which is why it is so, Interesting. It's a conversation starter. You and I both are marketers. We know we 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 need to interrupt the people's normal things in order for them to take it attention. It's like you scroll, 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 and pause, right? Like that's what we're trying to do. Um, and I would always say that, hey, he has a really awesome point. As a category leader, a category designer, category creator, he understands that people have. It's not about creating a market fit. It's about creating a new market. So he's coming in from that angle. And I absolutely love that because you and I both know that I've actually one of those people who I feel like humbly to say that, hey, I've built a category. So I know what you mean. I, my, my heart bleeds category if you have you know creation part of it. Uh, but I also feel like there are 99% of the organization. So like not every company should be a category creator. Um, it's they're not destined to be category creator. So there are 99% of the companies out there in the world who probably are following suit to become a better company. And this book is for them. Like, you know, if you want to build a category, go, go and read Play Bigger. I have 10 copies of it. I will send you a copy of Play Bigger. Uh, but if you want to build a great high-performing revenue team in your organization, I hope you'll take a look at my book. <laughs> oh, I fucking love it. And it's just, so before we get into the book, and of course I want to get into the book, you've also done, you've done many, many, many innovative, uh, wise things around the marketing of the book. And as you know, there's more business books published today than ever. And uh, standing out is harder and harder and harder as an author. So I'd love for you to tell me, you know, anything you want about the creation of the book, uh, we could talk a little bit about the naming of the book if you want um, and, and the marketing of the book, because you've done a shit ton of very interesting things. 
And as a result, um, you know, you hit you hit the Wall Street Journal list and you hit a whole bunch of these lists and you're selling thousands of books right out of the chute and number one guy and all this good shit. So I'm very curious, uh, unpack the marketing of uh, the move marketing for me, if you could. Yeah, yeah. So first of all, the name itself, like I remember again, and, and, and we openly talked about it, you were the one who suggested the name of the book. Like, I think the name of the book that we had at that point was Movement. And he's like, what the heck are you talking about? Like the movement doesn't make any sense. You have to figure out how do you write meant in it? Like just call it move. It's straight up. And I was like, that's, you know, that's brilliant. Let's just say that. So even you helped us come up with the name of the book. And in terms of marketing of the book, I, I really took a community approach. I, I think, you know, Chris is, is that I have believed in this, that without a community, you're simply a commodity. I've said that over and over again, as part of my uh, talk on Flip My Funnel, you think about like building Terminus, we build Flip My Funnel community, now I'm building the Peak community. And I truly believe that every company needs to think about building a community before they think about the product they want to build because your community is what's going to give you the float that you need to get your business going. Nobody has a perfect product and a perfect thing on day one. If you need some float, and I feel some of the best companies in the world have built a awesome community. So I feel like without a community, you as an organization and as a, even as a creator uh, are simply a commodity because you, you need your community. So um, I literally engaged the entire peak community in creation of this book. Um, I made sure that nowhere else, only in the peak community, I shared the early parts of the book and asked people for feedback. Once they gave me the feedback, I made sure that I put their names in the book, uh, in the acknowledgments. So all of their names are in the book who actually took the time. And I had hundreds of them who actually read the book and gave me comments before even the book was published. So all of their names are in the book in the acknowledgment section. So now they're part of a Wall Street Journal bestseller book. Their name is in the book, right? I made sure that all of them have a copy of the book uh, before it was gone. Um, I even created graphics for every single person who gave me a quote so that the week of the launch of the book, they will have a graphic with their quote already ready to go. So when I say go, they can uh, say, hey, it's launched. They can put their name with their photo on it, with their quote on it on LinkedIn or Instagram or wherever they are. So we just made it super easy for it, gave people ownership in it um, and gave them early access to it and tried to stay true to that process. And again, everybody just came back and like, hey, they've never been part of such a process before. So I'm curious, Sangram, how many people did you um, enroll in the uh, creation of your book that supported you in this way? Uh, about 500 about 500 people in the creation, review, uh, promotion, uh, support, uh, you know, volunteering for it, reviews, about 500 people were involved in the creation and the promotion of the book. And at one point, uh, people used to refer to that as sort of your quote unquote street team, you know, the people who <laughs> would take your new shit to the world. But of course, the vast majority of this promotion and collaboration did not take place in the uh, analog world, did it? No, it did not. It was all within the peak community. I literally didn't even go to LinkedIn where I post and you post and we share. I was so, I wanted to be so true to the tribe and say that, guys, this is not for any and everybody. I'm really giving you a backstage access to something that I'm building and I want you to do it. I really believe in the product. The book to me is a product that I'm, uh, that I want about that. I want you to have your name in it and, and I want you to help shape it. So a lot of the details like give people read the book and edited the book and gave me editing it. I mean, 
of course, I was blown away when in, in recognizing that people want to be part of something. It doesn't have to be what we can define that later on. People just want to be part of something. And if you can lend a hand enough to say, hey, I want you to be part of this too, and the people would do unreal things. And again, all of these people are part of a paid community, so they pay to be part of it. And on top of that, they are operating leaders. Um, but but still, I think there is a gap in a lot of com- people and companies that they were, they feel like they're not part of creating something, building something. And when you give that open hand to them, like, hey, look, I'm going to put your name in it. You're going to have a name on it. I think people have a different feeling and, and reaction to it. Yes. So th- there's an interesting thing here. You said people want to be part of something. So pop the hood on that for me, if you could. Yeah. You know, right now, um, I really do believe, as we talked about earlier, is people feel like they're walking on eggshells and there's just so much animosity and so many different things happening in their lives, politically, uh, personally, uh, company-wise. Uh, I mean, you, you're hearing about like, you know, the, you, you wrote an incredible post about Facebook changing its name and it's like, you know, what, you know, what are they doing? It's all about them, them, them. Um, you talk about, you, you look at what's going on today just globally around the one world government. Like it's just so many different things that is dividing people out internally. And I think when people show up, they kind of show up with this. I feel a lot of times with a lot of things hidden underneath their hearts and minds and they feel like they can't vocalize so if but there are very few things that i think you and i can point out today in the world and say well that's a positive thing that that's something good right that's something cool like it's it's all it's almost like if you take part on something you gotta hate something like that's almost feels like the 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 only option and there are a lot of people saying i don't want to do that so i think when you and i come around and say hey you know what we are creating something that's just good. Like that's just fun to be part of. I think people are like giving a big arm hug around you and coming back and saying, let's just be part of it. Amen. Hallelujah. Now, speaking of amens and hallelujahs, uh, you know, we have talked around here for years about the E and CEO stands for evangelist. And if you're going to create a category, you got to create a movement. Um, and, and it takes, it takes somebody to lead that movement. Right. Yeah. And so just listening to you, if I just listen to the diatribe, you just pulled right there, you are a classic evangelist. So maybe Sangram, tell me a little bit about what evangelism, um, means to you and how you think about it. Yeah. You know, in the early days when I, took on the title of evangelist. It was funny. People was like, aren't you already that? Like it was, it was like, it was for everybody else. Like, of course you're just that. Um, but I asked Guy Kawasaki, who was the first tech evangelist, right? Obviously Jesus was the first evangelist of all, but in terms of tech evangelism, it was Guy Kawasaki. And, and by was, the way, I don't know that I would ever put Jesus and Guy Kawasaki <laughs> in the same fucking sentence, but okay, keep going. I, I'm, I'm not a fan. Yeah, totally, totally good. Uh, but Guy, I asked him like, Guy, you were a tech evangelist as Apple, the first known tech evangelist. And what do you mean by evangelism? Like, what did you do? Because I wanted to see if I could model around that or is there something different that I want to do? And he said, look, and he gave me an amazing definition of it. He said, evangelism is the purest form of sales. If you think about that for a moment, it's like, you know, you don't carry a bag. I, I don't carry a quota. I don't carry a number on me. So when I walk in any room, 
uh, and I have like 10 or 20 customer calls every week. When I walk in every room, I have no agenda other than making that customer successful, other than making that person feel like they that I got their back or we are there for them. That's it. It's not, I don't have a number to meet. I don't have a the, the quota on me. So it really allows me to totally listen in, lean in with absolutely zero baggage of what I want to do. And I think that's not every company can afford that. Not but Well, in a way, any, every company cannot afford having somebody like that, right? In order for, for them to be amazing. But I feel like most companies don't do that. And if you don't have anybody doing that every day, I think you're missing out on a big revenue. I mean, Chris, I have I know we have closed more than 100,000, multiple $100,000 deals on a podcast conversation. Like literally the podcast happened and then they said, tell me more about your company. Then I make the intro and then they, oh, in two months later, they bought all day long. It is amazing how that works, isn't it? Now, the, the thing that's f- interesting about this, of course, now you're a co-founder of Terminus, but you're not the CEO of Terminus. Right. And uh, I have seen situations in the past where there's an evangelist, whether they have that title or not. Sometimes it's a CTO, a CMO, a product leader or whoever, who is a high profile executive and because of their sort of desire to evangelize the category and the company and the technology and and so forth. And, you know, some of us have a personality that is more drawn towards those things than others. Right. Um, I've seen situations where as the profile of the evangelist continues to ascend, um, Mm. the CEO gets a little bit uh, sort of twisted and going like, why is this person getting all the attention? I'm the fucking CEO. And so human beings are human beings. It's like, you know, I say, I say this with rock bands all the time, you know, bands want a great lead singer until they get a great lead singer. And then they hate the fucking lead singer because the lead singer gets all the gals or, or, or guys, depending on the situation. And so, so the reality is you're sort of the lead singer, right? And so tell me about how that works with a CEO relationship when you're as high a profile evangelist as you are. Well, it, it is hard. Uh, I agree thousand percent. Like the first, my, when we started the company, we were three co-founders, me and my other two co-founders are Eric Spett and Eric Vass. Uh, Eric Spett was the CEO of the company. And I'll tell you, you know, now we have a new CEO, uh, but Eric Spett, when he was a CEO, both of them were tech uh, folks, right? They were in development. They were building stuff together. I wasn't, I didn't know. I mean, if you go ask Chris, anybody seven years ago, is Sangram an evangelist? Is Sangram someone who would go speak? Is Sangram going to write books? Is Sangram going to write a podcast? They would say, you got to be kidding me. Like that guy, like, no, he's in it. He's a nerd. He wants to figure out what's working, what's not. He's a team in, in, inside focus. That's who I was leading teams. Like that's all I wanted to do. And then when we started Terminus, it was like, wait a minute. Who's going to go out and talk about this thing? My other two co-founders were like, dude, you're the marketer. You're supposed to go do that. And I'm like, we are based here in Atlanta and we're trying to build a new category. We don't have funding. There is no way we're going to be able to do all this stuff that we want. And then there are all these Silicon Valley companies running up and just, just they launched a company and they have a 20 million in, in like funding. Like, how are we going to do it? So I pretty much put on the role of evangelist without even knowing because there was no thing. And I'll tell you one really interesting story, how it really happened. It's a personal story. We started Terminus, uh, my, my wife, we had our second kid, uh, my daughter, our daughter, and she was four weeks old. By the old. way, I hate to interrupt you, Sangram, but you look way too young to me to have 
more than one kid. Never mind one kid. <laughs> yeah, I've, uh, my you, son. Oh, you look 11. like you're about uh, 23 or something. Like you just started yeah. drinking. <laughs> oh man, I wish that was. I'm 42. Uh, but I, I, I need my, whatever supplements you're taking. You need to email me that shit. <laughs> <laughs> Here you go. More green juice. And, and that's part of life. Uh, but no, my son is 11 now. Um, and my daughter is, she just turned seven yesterday. She was a Halloween uh, baby. So I'm 31st. Um, and she, but she was four weeks old at that time. And my wife wasn't working at that time because I was working at Salesforce. We're doing fine. We're doing great. And I meet these two co-founders at the bar. And then I come home and say, we need to go start this company called Terminus. And she looks at me like, are you crazy? And I'm like, no, I really feel like this has legs. Like, I think if I don't do this, it's going to be, I'm going to regret. We go, Chris, back and forth for a week. And a week later, she comes to me and says, all right, I can see that you, you, you're really going to regret if you don't do this thing and you're going to be upset about it and you're not going to have you know fun time doing whatever you're doing. I'm like, you're right. And she said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go find a job and we're going to put our uh, daughter in daycare in like four weeks. So she literally went and found a job in two weeks and got a full-time gig going because I wasn't going to make any money as we start this company. Uh, for a while. And she said, but here's the thing. This is the kicker. This is what triggered evangelism in me and out of me every day of my time since then. She said, here's the thing. You got one year. In one year, show me this thing as legs. Otherwise, you're going to find a real job. Now, when somebody says that to you as a partner and says, you got one year, that's it. That literally made me like, all right, we have no tomorrow. So we started doing stuff that nobody did, right? We wrote a book in the first year with Wiley's Account-Based Marketing for Dummies. Uh, we we did four conferences called Flip My Funnel, took investor, uh, to, took analysts with us. We even invited our competitors like Engageo, Demandbase, all of the competitors. I gave them the stage and said, dude, there is no category of one. So if you want to build a category, let's stop fighting. Let's come together create an industry conference, and promote the heck out of it. We did that the first time, and guess what? We ended up doing, they said, where's the next event? When is the next event? So we ended up doing 10 events together, trying to build the category. And at the end of the year, it was clear that we're going to build a bigger company than we ever imagined. But that one-year conversation with my wife led me to be a true evangelist. So translation, she put you on a short leash. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> pretty much and i was looking at her every day working you know kids and everything and i'm coming from like this startup thing not making money so it drove me to do the best work i could do during that year you know it's funny because we hear all this stuff about tech uh, companies and they raise all this money and blah 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 and so that can take pressure off which is often a good thing right because the company can focus on building its product, figuring out its category strategy, getting ready to scale and all that stuff before having to worry about revenue if they've uh, acquired a bunch of VC. However, when you take away what you're describing, there's an urgency you take away because I myself understand that feeling of um, as you're getting ready to go to work in the morning, your beloved is standing there saying, hey, listen, um, don't come home unless you close some fucking deals because like we need to pay the rent. (laughs) Right. That's a very focusing thing, isn't it? It absolutely is. I remember, this is funny. I was telling another founder this. There was a time, Chris, where the first few times I knew I could take a nap in between calls and I knew exactly when to wake up 
to finish my thought and then let the other person speak for like three minutes and then wake up again. There's a picture of me of somebody taking up because I was doing this all. I became a sales guy, never did sold anything. I became a marketer. I became evangelist because all I could think about is that I don't want to go again, do a job. I'm going to build this thing. I'm going to do this thing. And I can't see my wife not having the option to it. So uh, it, it literally drove me to do things that I feel that 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 time block. If I, when I tell founders, when I advise now, it's like, guys, put yourself, create forcing functions in your career, in your life, in your business, create forcing functions. It may not be like you're, you're, you have a partner that says something, but if you don't have a forcing function, like, like Salesforce, their forcing function is Dreamforce, big event. That's when they launch events. That's when they launch a new product. Then that's when they launch an offering. So events became their forcing function. So every company needs to figure out what those forcing force functions are in my life. And the life of Terminus, that was a forcing function that really have served us well. And uh, remind me, Sangram, what your wife's first name is. She, her name is Manmeet. Manmeet. M-A-N. Yeah, M-A-N-M-E-E-T. Well, uh, I think she deserves a very special commendation from the founders and board of directors of Terminus for putting some serious <laughs> tension in the line because she's. Uh, <laughs> she sounds like she's a big part of the success. Oh my God, she's an equal st stakeholder. Uh, she looks at every day. Okay, how much did we qu close this quarter? So she knows where the company is every quarter. Actually, you want to know something funny about that? This is a technique that I think very few people have ever heard of, never mind use. And it's called um, quota by spouse. So, what you just said, I'll never forget this very early on in my career. Uh, I did a little bit of work with a guy named James Alexander in Toronto. And James was a partner at a, I can't remember which one, but remember when computer retailers were a big fucking deal? And it was like, um, uh, it'll, I'm sure it'll come to me when we finish the con conversation. Anyway, he ran one of the biggest computer retailers in Toronto and they had a B2C business but most of their business was B2B and, you know, they were a compact reseller back when that mattered and an IBM PC reseller and all that shit. Right. And lands and Novell, if you remember all those days, you're, you're yep. a little bit younger than me, but or more than a little bit. younger than me. Anyway, long story longer. Uh, I was talking to him about his sales management techniques because he sales rolled up into him and he said this and they had their sales reps on monthly quotas back then. And so this is what they would do. On the um, 15th of the month, and this just tells you how long ago it was, they would generate a letter and they'd send it to the sales rep's spouse, who <laughs> more often than not, not always, but often was female, because back then it was more male than it is today. But anyway, and it would say, hey, uh, Jimmy's quota for the month is X. Right now, Jimmy's at Y. And just so you know, if he hits X, here's what the uh, commission payment is going to be. And if he doesn't, it's not going to happen. Yeah. And so, and they fucking generated that letter every month on the 15th of the month. And he's like, you know, all of a sudden my pipeline review meetings were very different and much quicker, very focused <laughs> because he, he harnessed that exact energy you're talking about. <laughs> oh my God. This is so funny. I think we need to apply that. I'm uh, uh, apply that now, but, but here's another thing it, it's so true. One in the early days of our company, we were doing month to month. Right. Every we were selling month to month 
And we were like creating all this. Okay, you know what? We need to be selling yearly now. And we created the process. We kicked it off. We told everybody next month happens, still selling month to month. And we're like, we couldn't figure out. We, we told them all the amazing things that will happen. Nothing changed in, our, in the sales behavior. And then we realized, oh, we never changed their compensation. We never created an incentive plan for this. So the next week, we just say, hey, you know what? If you closed a yearly deal, and if you're like first-time founders, Chris, we had no idea. We still don't have any idea around it. So we're we're just learning this stuff. So so we changed the quota and said, hey, you're going to make a X percent bonus um, if you're able to do an annual deal. 80% of the deals were annual next month. I mean, so incentives are a big deal. And I think as much as people want to say, well, you know what? Let's just have a great talk track and story and deck and stuff. No, no, change the compensation plan. Your marketing sales will be aligned. Your team would have know what to do. You just have to tell them the goal and show them the money to get there. A lot of things, actually, it's human nature. It just works. Yes. Another one that a technique that I have used and I've seen others in our industry use is the carrot of quota club sales club. Yeah. So you, you create all this beautiful shit, you know, an invitation and a little baggie with sand in it and fucking, I don't know, you know, all sorts of, I, I'm, this is not clearly my expertise, but you create a drip campaign over the year where you keep sending shit to the house that sort of gets people stoked. You know, you send them a pair of flip-flops and shit and whatever. Like, you just send them some shit a handful of times, maybe four to six times throughout the year, to the house promoting sales club. And if the top 10% or the top 20% or whatever the number percentage is of your sales team get to go, you're sending this out to 100% of yeah. the sales force and their spouse or partner or whoever is seeing all this interesting shit about, oh, you know, look, they're going to go to Kuala Lala Ding Dong this year and look at how beautiful the beaches are. And they're going to this and they're going to that. And there's going to be unicorns and fairies and cocktails and the like. Right. And so uh, that, it's another way of sort of uh, management by spouse. Yeah, dude, like this needs to be like a completely like I'm taking notes on this one, like a drip <laughs> campaign for existing employees to motivate them to do great things. I feel there's more to be done here than I think most companies. I don't think any company. Well, and does here's that one too. other. This is another tactical thing, but uh, something that most companies get wrong. On the last night of Quota Club, where you have the big party and all that, most companies miss a giant opportunity mm-hmm. because at that party, other than acknowledge your people and there's, of course, acknowledge the spouses and all the shit that you would normally do. The other thing you have to do is announce next year's quota club. Yeah. In front of the spouses. And if you're really fucking smart, you play a video and there's a little Scooby snack at every chair about next year's club in Kuala Lala Ding Dong or wherever the fuck you're going so that you, you set the hook right there. Because what happens, of course, if you do that, it's the final night. Everybody's happy. We're high-fiving. We're having cocktails. We're, you know, drinking Chateau Neuf Ding Dong, et cetera, et cetera. And in front of the spouse, you say, oh, by the way, if you make club next year, you get to come with yeah. us too. Ba-ba-ba-ba-ba. And that, <laughs> that then gets the spouse working for you all year long. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you no problem there. You know, another thing that I'm, I think about and and you know this from a category perspective was we did when we started the whole ABM category be part of that was 
and you mentioned about like that event was the awards. Chris, like one of the best thing that we have seen in terms of building categories to create awards. So for ABM, we created ABMEs. And that literally everybody got an ABMEs thing at their place. We've been doing that for five years now, and we'll get hundreds of people submitting for it because if you create an awards gala and you talk, it's now it's an industry con. Not only it's an industry conference, but also an awards thing. It just totally sets up the category for it, and I think very few companies do that. Very few companies do it. And the, the interesting thing, you're so right. Uh, a thousand years ago, just just after the invention of fire. When I was at Mercury, um, we did the same thing at the launch of our business technology optimization category, BTO. We partnered with Information Week, who at the time was, if not the top, certainly one of the top publications. And they had this very super ding dong um, event for CIOs in Palm Springs where, you know, all the CIO ding dong things happen. And um, we came to them and we said, we, we, sure, we want to sponsor the event. But what we really want to do is create an awards dinner at the event. Yeah. And we did exactly the same thing. And you make it black tie or certainly dress up. So you know, don't show up in jeans, like show up looking good. Yes. And yep. they, they, people bring their spouses and they get up on stage and some people fucking cry and shit because they've never won yeah. an award like this in their business career. Right. So it becomes very personally meaningful to people. And to your point, if there's major awards for it, it must be an important yeah. category. Yeah. And very few companies take the time to do it. I think here, here's my uh, speculation. And I love to hear your thoughts on this, uh, Chris. Is I think most of the things that companies can do to drive their business forward, build a new category or create a great go-to-market process, all of these things actually don't cost money. It actually doesn't cost money. Like, you know, to put together something like that, it's, it's, it's really going to cost no money to send a letter to the spouse about like what's going to happen so that the salesperson is more incented to actually put in awards things together. It actually doesn't cost you. are already doing an event. Like the awards is not going to cost you a lot of money. Majority of the things don't cost money. But you know what it costs is your thoughtfulness, your intentionality around it, your authenticity to the tribe that you're really trying to serve. And that costs money. So if it's not, it, it won't show up on a spreadsheet somewhere. So nobody's tracking it, but it actually definitely shows up in the hearts and the actions of the people out in the market. Yes. Amen. Hallelujah, brother. Now let's um, maybe talk about move. If I'm a, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a founder, I'm a CEO, I'm a CMO, I'm a UFO of some kind. And <laughs> UFO, I like that. <laughs> see if I could slide that one in on you. Um, and I come to you and I say, hey, Sangram, you're, you're, you're the guru. You just wrote the book on movement. You've done this before in your career uh, phenomenally. You've been one of the very early people to kind of uh, sort of blatantly or explicitly use this as a strategy to create a category and ultimately a category dominating company. So I want to be like Sangram. I'm starting a new company or I'm launching a new carbodingulator or whatever it is I'm doing. I want to create my own movement, Sangram. What do I do? Yeah. All right. So the first thing that I, I, I say to everyone around this thing, as we have learned in the in the book, it's like two different frameworks. The first thing that I feel like most companies don't know is that what stage of the business they're in. Because your go-to-market 
changes based on the stage you're in and the type of company you want to build. So for example, do you want to build a product-led growth company? Just then that's a different go-to-market motion than a category building. Like there is no way you're doing the same things as a pro as a category builder as you're doing as a product-led or a sales-led. So you have to figure out what exactly you're going to be in. I know we're going to get, get into this one. Uh, and the second part of this is, one thing that we, we figured out, Chris, in the research of this was you could be a $20 million company, a $20 million company, and still be in a problem market fit, which is like the first stage of what we call the 3P framework, problem market fit, product market fit, and platform market fit, uh, which you have a visceral reaction to it every time I say market fit. Uh, so just going along with that, uh, since I have the mic for a second, is that companies- But not for much longer. <laughs> not much, there's a mute button coming up. But companies really need to understand, are they, are, do they have it, they figured out. So for example, a company would never be in a product space or product market space, because if they haven't figured out the retention part of it, if they haven't created a scalable process to sell the business, sell the product at, at a way that it works. And here is the here's the reason why this book is really interesting. And I hope people pick up if they're really thinking about go to market as a thing is there was an article written a few, I think it's been several articles written, but a few months ago called the SaaS Valley of Death. And you may have heard about this. It's called the SaaS Valley. People can search uh, on Google and look for it, SaaS Valley of Death. And McKinsey did a study where they said, not only a company getting to a million is hard, like it's really hard. We all know who build businesses, we know how hard it is. Uh, but as soon as you hit 10 million, you enter something, what they call the SaaS Valley of Death. Meaning 0.4% of the companies actually go from 10 million to 50, 0.4. Like the number of companies who die after 10 million is incredibly high because they're not able to manifest into a new company. And they attributed all of that. And that, that holds the Valley of Death article has that McKinsey study for people to look at. They attributed all of that is because after 10 million, it's not that your vision is no longer valid. As a matter of fact, your vision actually may become more real because you hit just 10 million, you know some stuff. Um, it's not that you can hire great people to move the company forward. You absolutely may change the people, but you would still have great people that you can hire. It's not, those are not the reasons why companies fail after $10 million to hit $50 million. They fail according to their study, purely 100% giving uh, credit, if you want to call it, to go to market evolution. They're saying that, look, after 10 million, company is fundamentally a different company. You, you all of a sudden have customer success. All of a sudden you have to look at retention. All of a sudden, you may have more than one product to sell. All of a sudden, now you have competitors who are coming and crouching at you. All of a sudden, your existing customers are asking more of you. So all of these pressures, they become evident for you. And what you really need to now think about is, is, is your go-to-market evolving as your product is evolving, as your teams are evolving, as your vision is evolving? And the reason it doesn't happen, according to that SaaS Valley of Death article, according to McKinsey, was that your go-to-market for most companies never evolve. They stay stagnant. Interesting. Uh, do they, I, I haven't read the article, so, but I will check it out. Um, so it's the ability essentially to evolve from the early stage to go from uh, a baby and a toddler to a middle schooler or maybe even yeah. teenager. Is that what we're sort of talking about here? 
Yeah, pre- pretty much. Like, so for example, the companies that would never move from problem to product market fit is because they will they might be able to get a new customer, but they may not be able to retain it. They may not be able to find a similar customer again. They may be solving new use cases for new cohorts. So they will never become a product market. You, you will never be able to own it and say, oh, I know now how to go after. I know exactly to go after manufacturing industry at this price point, at this particular persona. We know how to sell that. We can win those deals. We have 80, 90% confidence in it. You can't say that unless you have a repeatable use case that you can sell over and over and over again. So yes. companies could be a $20 million business and still doing edge cases and use cases, but not get into the middle part. They never graduate to become a middle schooler and understand, oh, I need to now really start making work uh, things work here. A big problem that I see in this phase is uh, today we hear a lot about, oh, who's your avatar and youth cases and, and look, all that shit's very, very important. Uh, so I'm being facetious, you know. Uh, a little, little excessively, but the thing that they don't get clear about is who is not our customer. What is not our use case? And the truth is, from zero to ten million, most tech companies, if they're B two B, especially, but it can also happen to B two C companies. But in the B two B space, you're sort of a consulting company with some technology, right? Yeah. And, and there's a high degree of customer interaction around the technology and implementation and integration and all that shit in the beginning. And if you try to be everything to everybody, to your point, to scale from 100 uh, to 10 to 50 and beyond, there's got to be fucking repeatability. You can't get there doing one-off custom orders. You've got you to sell what's on the menu, right? you got to yeah. sell what we have on the truck, not say, oh, well, sure, we could do that. And, and then so, so my, the point being, if, the, if you don't establish pattern recognition around who is our customer, who does have the problem, who gets it, and who doesn't, and we listen only, because everybody says, oh, this is your customer, customer, customer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if, if as a $10 million company, you listen to the three wrong customers, you're going to be in that valley of death forever. And so my point is, um, not only do you have to be building the ability to scale and get repeatability and all of that good shit, you have to fucking know who your customer is, therefore who you should listen to and serve, and who your customer isn't. Yeah, well, I'll give you three examples here because you mentioned B2B, B2C. So let's just talk about a B2B example who went to the problem, product, and platform. I love, love, love to get your, uh, your, your take on it. They talk about a B2C example for a company that actually went through these. And then just for fun, talk about a podcast uh, that actually went through it. All right. So let's just take uh, a company like HubSpot, because most people are familiar with it. Uh, Brian and Dermage, they're investors in Terminus, actually went and interviewed them and talked through them about this stuff. And I remember this conversation where in the early days when they started off, they created a great marketing engine. Like most people probably remember have done their website greater and all those things, right? But you probably have seen that they had one of the greatest retention issues because they're, they really they were about to fold as a company. Most people don't know this, but if you go and research on HubSpot, they've been very open about the early days. Even MIT did a study on it. They were about to fold because the retention was completely off the wazoo. They were not able to keep anything because they haven't, figured out the product aspect of it. 
And then, so then the problem market fit, they got a lot of people interested in it, but they were not able to, to figure out what are they selling? What is the one use case or one thing that people just wanted? And then right about, I think, 2010 or so, they acquired Performable. David Cancel was the, the company that they acquired from. And they got and understood that, oh, they have all these people. Marketing automation is a space that they can actually own and run in the middle of the funnel part. Eloqua was there. Marketo was there. Parlot was making a uh, scene in the SMB. So all of a sudden, HubSpot had all these community of people. They believed in their content, but they didn't have a product that actually sold and made any difference. So they actually got really crisp about marketing automation, own that marketing automation space for SMB and really early stage, very small SMB market. And now we all know that they are flywheel, right? Like they have, they can now serve to not just marketing, but sales and customer success. So what you go through is a problem, but then a product that you have to own it, where the market market actually earned the right to build a platform at the end of the day. And you can build that. Same thing with Salesforce, right? They, they went in and, and for about 15 years or so, Salesforce did not get into marketing cloud at all until in 2013, they bought exact target and that's how they entered the marketing cloud. So they owned the CRM and the sales. They wanted 80 plus. I've worked at Salesforce. I remember Mark Benioff's talking about, we want to own the CRM space 80 to 90% before we want to go and build another cloud. So it was very crisp about what he really wanted to do. So he did not change his eye. He got the product market fit and then he has obviously all the clouds in the world. But let's just take a B2C example. Um, well, during the research, we were looking at McDonald's. Uh, McDonald's, in when they started, I think they started in what, 1940, uh, McDonald's started. And they had from barbecue to orange juice. They were selling everything. And they were like, well, we're still not making profits. Like what's going on? Um, after a few years, in 1948, they had somebody come and do a study on it. In 1948, they found out people are just like me. They only buy hamburgers, fries, and soda. That's all they bought. So they literally shut down McDonald's for three months, and they focused on making sure that their entire menu was focused on these three things. There's a couple others, but these three things. Guess what? Profit soared. They're 85% of the revenue. So they really really got into it. And now we know how big of a company McDonald's is. Like it or not, like they're doing well. Uh, think about podcast. Uh, you and I both probably know and heard about Joe Rogan, like 2009, that that guy started with literally answering questions on Twitter. By 2011, he became the number one podcaster in the world. He focused on that one thing uh, and, and became really good. And now I have a $100 million deal with Spotify to expand his brand on it. I'll give you one real one, one quick one, because you are big on newsletter. I love your newsletter. If anybody hasn't subscribed to it, go ahead and subscribe to the Pirates. I read it. It's like initially I looked at it. I'm like, oh my God, long. It's long. And the, oh, it's good. And it's good. So I went from long, long to good, good in my own head as a Reddit. But you think about Morning Brew, right? Or Skim, those newsletters. They started with solving a, trying to solve a common problem, a simple problem. Millennials don't want to read uh, Wall Street Journal newsletter. Like they, they just feel like that's just too, uh, too much not what millennials want to read. They wanted something that is easy to read, but still give them everything they want to know. They started with that, focused on one newsletter that I call the product market fit. One newsletter focused on it, business newsletter every single uh, week, every single day at 6 a.m. in the morning. Everybody get it build a $3 million business on that one newsletter. And then that was in 2018. In 2020, they were a $20 million company, went from three to 20. And now they have a newsletter for retail, for marketing, for tech and stuff. 
So all those examples of companies going from problem to product to platform, but here is the kicker. I've not seen many companies go from problem to platform like leapfrog without making sure that they have a really good understanding of what you said around who they're selling and what's selling and what who they're not selling to and getting really good at it. But there are stories like this. I've just found so many of them. Well, thank you for that. Uh, it's so fascinating because it just proves over and over again that uh, niching down works. Yeah. The more narrow, the, the clearer the problem and therefore the solution, uh, the more impactful. And just people have the hardest fucking time getting this around their head. Yeah. Um, that the, the, you get real narrow, real specific, you ignore everything else. And to your point on the product side, Make a very simple fucking product. Yeah. Very stripped down. You know, one of my favorite expressions is that product is so feature rich, nobody uses it anymore. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, a lot of companies, whether they're a startup or a larger company, they have all these grand visions for uh, their category, their product, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it's way too big. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so, and so by focusing, by niching down, by, by positioning in a micro category, by dominating that, to your point on Benioff, I'm going to dominate here and I'm going to wait. I'm going to build my fucking moat. Yep. I'm going to serve my customers. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build a data flywheel. I'm going to evangelize the shit out of this stuff, right? And only then will I start expanding. It's a very, very powerful idea and yet one that seems uh, difficult for most people to wrap their head around. Yeah, and, and, and I think you, to that point, Chris, I think people want to jump and get to the next level too quick. Like people are too quick to call themselves a platform. And what our research, and if people are being around enough to know that you could be in a stage for 10 years before you get to the next stage. It, it's not about jumping in and trying to say, we like I've, I've, I've talked to somebody recently, you know, he's like, hey, we gave, we, you know, we, we're a platform. And I'm like, okay, what's your revenue? 100K. I'm like, okay, you're not a platform company by any stretch of the imagination. I'm sorry, not, not trying to hurt your feelings, but I'm telling you straight up, you're not a platform company. So people are so quick to move to the next stage that they try to leapfrog and do the necessary things that they need to do to build a, a profitable, healthy, strong team, a strong moat around their business. And when you look at companies like HubSpot, when you think about companies like, again, they were about to die until they figured it out, but they took the time. It took them 10, 20 years. All these companies, they, they, it didn't happen overnight. People are too quick to label themselves in it. But then, but at the same time, I think your vision needs to be big enough. So for example, for us, we started with advertising, like literally, that's what we did, account-based advertising when we started at Terminus, but we never called it account-based advertising as a category because we knew it would never be big enough. To, to build a category. So we continue to call it account-based marketing. So it was a vision. We didn't know what else would go in it. But to you, as you always say, name it. And, and I think it was very important to name it in order to get in and start playing with it and give people enough feeling around like, ah, oh, this could be interesting, could be big, could be different things. But we focused on one thing for almost three years before we got into anything else. Yes, amen, hallelujah. And there's this magical line we're trying to walk here, which is if you're a startup uh, or an earlier stage company, to have a category and a point of view 
that mobilizes and ultimately creates a movement in a community and therefore turns into a category and away we go, right? This is what we're trying to do. However, if your vision, that is to say your point of view for your category is too big, it's not credible that it would come from a startup. People go, yeah. what? You can't fucking do that. That sounds like something GE would do or IBM would do or some, it just doesn't like, I, I'm not going to bet that big a part of my life in a B2B environment or business in a B2C environment on, you know, um, three people in a dream and a dog. At the same time, we want a vision. We want a category. We want a point of view that is big enough to be important and that uh, is provocative in terms of capturing attention and, and imagination, but walks that line between it's big enough to be powerful and engaging and capture my attention and so forth, but not so big that I go, yeah. what the fuck are you talking about? I'm not going to buy that shit from some company I never heard of. And so I'm curious, Sangram, do you have any insight around how you find that magical line, particularly, you know, if you go back to, you're sitting there going, okay, well, what we really do is advertising. Yeah. But if we say advertising, that feels too narrow. So we're going to go to account-based marketing. But interestingly enough, you, you had account-based in front of the marketing. You had a very clear descriptor and you, it was those two words in front of marketing make it very clear you're dealing with a part of marketing. Even if I don't really know what account-based means, um, it's, it's clear you're not all of marketing. Right. And so why did you say account-based marketing? You say, okay, account-based advertising too small, but you didn't say marketing. Yeah. Yeah, we, it, it, we didn't want it to be a buzzword where people look at it and say, ah, that's another, like, like for example, people like revenue marketing. Uh, okay, like, you know, what, what does that even mean? Uh, or any, where do we go with it? It needed to be around, around anchored around a philosophy and a point of view that, that makes sense. So for example, for me, uh, when we started off, we said, all right, where, what is the problem? Forrester at that time came up with a study that said less than 1% of the leads are turning into, into customers. Let me say that again. Forrester in 2015 came up with a study that says less than 1%, I think it was 0.45, less than 1% of the leads turn into customers. We said, we're going to anchor on that. We're going to use that as a pain point because nobody can dispute with that. It's by an analyst form. And we're going to say, we want to treat and we we believe that we're better than this we believe that you are better than this and, and any marketer would ever take that number to their cfo and ceo should get fired like hey less than one percent of what i do actually impacts the revenue of the business that's a problem right so we said okay that's the angle that's a that's a that's a clear statement that helps people understand the problem is real but then now we have to create a picture of success for them what does it look like so we say well we have to have an enemy well who is the enemy the enemy is the funnel. So that's where the whole flip my funnel came about is like, we have to have a common enemy that people feel like we have to, it's a, it's like my, with my kids. If so, if something spilled in the house, it's uh, we know one of them did it. And every time we go and ask them, they always do this, right? Like it's always the case. So we all need a common enemy to point to when what's going on. So we're like, Let's point the funnel as the reason that people had. And when we showed the funnel the first time as a test and asked the question, who loves this funnel? Who actually and who actually uses this funnel every day? Everybody raised their hand. The second question was, okay, who loves this funnel? Nobody raised their hand. So we knew that people are using this as a necessary evil in their life, necessary enemy in their life. So when we 
painted a flip funnel right in front of them, a completely new funnel. They were like, great, like we now have a promised land. We want to go there. So I think there's a series of sequences and steps that companies can think about. Is there a, a, a quote or a stat in the industry that people are, it's undisputable, so you can just anchor on it. Is there a way to have a common enemy that people would look at it and say, oh, yes, we got that problem now, like viscerally, because they feel that every day. And then can you paint a promised land? Can you paint a picture for them to say that, hey, I don't know how to get there. I don't know when we will go there. But if they are on a boat and they want to go there, I want to be on the same boat. And thereby you create a community around it. Awesome. And if I think about, let me just make sure I get the flip my funnel thing and we, we crush that one. So if you think about a traditional funnel, if you imagine that image in your head, sometimes it's on the side, sometimes it's top to bottom, but however it is, typically the funnel that we have all seen, whether it's from a Salesforce automation perspective or from a marketing leads coming in perspective, it's wide at the top and narrow at the bottom. And you said, well, hey, wait a minute. If we flip the funnel, we make it more narrow at the top it's wider at the bottom in terms of producing revenue. Yes? Yep. yep. And that's really goes a game changer for people. It's pure genius. It's fucking genius. So ABM's the category and flipping my funnel is how I execute in the category. Yes. yes. How I do account-based yeah. marketing. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So, so um, here's the other interesting thing. So you named the category account-based marketing, but you also named the technique for doing it. Yeah. And around here, we have a saying called uh, uh, frame it, name it, and claim it. And another thing I want to say about that, and I'm building to a question here, Sangram, is um, often people forget to name critical things. Mm-hmm. So in your case, it was the, it was, it was the framing, naming, of cl- and claiming of both the category and you did. You said the problem is the funnel is flipped the wrong way, right? That's how you framed it, right? And then you named it flipping the funnel. Now, here's the other interesting thing people don't get about naming. If it's important, it has a name. The difference between livestock and pets is names. Think about that for a fucking second, right? And, and yet most people, for if, if, they're, if they're wise enough to frame, name, and claim the category, ABM, they don't uh, name the technique or the solution. They name their products and shit. Yeah. But they don't, they don't frame, frame, name, and claim the answer, the solution, is flip my funnel. Yeah. And that is a very powerful example of what we also refer to around here as languaging, the strategic use of language to change thinking. So with all that said, I'd love for you to pop the hood for me on how you thought about ABM and Flip My Funnel and the languaging and the story that that ultimately became to create the category, to create the company. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll, now here is the truth part. Like, you know, we, uh, John, John C. Maxwell, I was at one of his conferences. He said this something. If you want to impress people, tell about all the great things that you do, uh, all of all the success. And if you want to impact people, talk about the failures you have. So I know you and I are in the business of impacting people, not impressing people. So I'll tell you the failure. Um, I did not just uh, just came up with Flip My Funnel and said, 
let's just go and do this thing. I wanted to build, like any marketer, a terminus conference. Like, really, that's what I wanted to do because I came in from like, hey, we got to have our own conference. That'd be awesome kind of thing. And then I reached out to all these people to see if they were sponsored and none of them sponsored. And as I said, in the early days, we were a startup company based out of Tech Village. We couldn't even afford a $150 desk, a hot desk added. I sat down on the outside and then the two, you know, my other co-founders sat down on the inside. Like that's how we started in the first, in 2015. We couldn't even afford a $150 a month hot desk. So let's just talk about that in a, in a separate way of thoughts because I had a bills to pay at home given the story that I shared. So when we started that, I'd reached out and like, hey, I want to build a conference so that we can talk about it. And none of them said we will sponsor it. I'm like, that's a problem. Then I go to this conference uh, by Scott Brinker called the Mar- MarTech Conference. And I saw sales and marketing. I see the funnel. And then I'm on a flight back from San Francisco. And in that flight, I'm sitting in the middle seat. It's a five-hour flight from San Francisco to Atlanta, sitting in the middle seat in an in economy and with two people drunk, no Wi-Fi. Like that's the the image picture picture that it was really bad fire flight like totally drunk people. I'm sitting in the middle seat, no Wi-Fi and doing nothing. What do I do? So I'm scribbling. Were they, were they farting too? <laughs> it was a lot going on that I don't want to even get into. I was like, get me out of, give me a parachute to jump off. Like it was so it was so bad. So all that to say is I was sitting there twiddling my thumb and I I, I draw the original the traditional funnel the broad and narrow broad at the top and at the bottom and flipped it. And said, what if it was different? And that's how I came through with those stages. And then I bought a domain as soon as I landed for eight bucks called Flip My Funnel for eight bucks. And then I reached out to the same 10 people that said no to me to sponsor an event. And those all 10 people said, oh, yeah, we would love to come and sponsor an event that says Flip My Funnel. That'd be cool. And I gave them all keynotes so that they can talk at the event. And I had only one role. Do not talk about your product. You only talk about the change in the way marketing and sales is done. It's challenging the status quo of marketing and sales. It's all about flipping the funnel. They all said yes. So they all sponsored an event that literally two months ago said no to. Only for the reason that you just mentioned, because we named it. We named it and called it something. So I would love to take the credit and say, man, I was so genius. I came up with it and figured out. It was desperation, man. It was like, I need to run this event. I need not to go to a job. I need to find a way to, to put put our, ourselves on the map. And, and that's really what the Flip My Funnel event did. And when they came to the event, we were a booth just like everybody else. My keynote was all about changing the way sales and marketing should be. And everybody did the same, not similar, but their own way and take on marketing and sales. And even the speakers, I reached out to Megan Eisenberg and Jill Raleigh for the first time. And I did a video for them and said, I want you to come to the first ever conference that is all about changing the status quo and marketing and sales. I'm not going to tell you what to speak, but I I think you're the best person in the world to talk about this topic. They all flew from wherever they were on their own dime to come to speak at a conference in Atlanta because it was all about them and not about us. They were like, we have never been to a conference that is not about the product. I'm like, welcome. So that is how we architected it, but it came from desperation. And I would be remiss if I didn't share that story. Well, thank you for your candor, because a lot of people would go, well, let me tell you about what kind of a genius I am. (laughs) Me and my co-founders are. And uh, as you were talking, I just wrote to myself, isn't failure a legendary teacher? 
Yeah. Oh, the best teacher of all is that. <laughs> like none of them said yes to me to sponsor. It was such an ego stroke for me. I'm like, wow, I thought I was somebody before we started. The, I was at Salesforce and part of that. I thought I had some swag. None of them wanted to do it. And as two months later, Chris, two months later, and it's a story and, and a little lesson for everybody. When you call, so it goes back to the, it's kind of full circle goes back to where we started, right? It was when you lend a hand for people to come be part of something with you, people jump in with their both feet in it. And that's what we saw with Flip My Funnel. We literally said, hey, we want to build a conference that led to a podcast. Now it's going to have thousand episodes by December, led to a conference, led to a book, all that stuff with a singular idea. And all of them have been just supporting it because they recognize that we were authentic. I wasn't on the stage talking about Terminus. I never used the word Terminus, as a matter of fact, on that stage. And even now, with 20 plus events we have done, I've never used the word Terminus, even as an introduction. I'm the founder of the Flip My Funnel. Like that's how I will get introduced, not even as a co-founder of Terminus. And I wanted to stay true to the tribe. And I think this is the part where a lot of companies get it wrong. They want what Salesforce did with Dreamforce. They want what HubSpot did with Inbound. They want what Terminus did with Flip My Funnel, but they don't want to have a conference that doesn't have their big giant logo at the front of it. Like, that's the problem. You're not authentic. Make the logo big. <laughs> <laughs> the greatest song in marketing history. It's And it's interesting how many people just don't get the power of the no-sell sell. Yeah. Right. When you come from a place of education, you come from a place of contribution, you come from a place of radical generosity. Uh, and then people go, who are you again? What do you do exactly? Right. Um, and, and we live in this world of entrepreneur porn and hustle, hustle, hustle and all this bullshit. And it makes people think that they should always be pitching. Yeah. Uh, when in point of fact, um, that turns you into a fucking carnival barker. That that turns you into the the idiot who owns the used car dealership barking on television. Yeah, and you know, think about this. If I if we did the first conference and never closed a single deal, we probably wouldn't have done another conference because there wasn't money in the bank to do it. The entire year, guess how much we spent, Chris, on four conferences in four different cities, taking the gospel of ABM to Boston, Atlanta, Chicago, and San Francisco. 250 people attending it, uh, eight keynotes, five breakouts, food, everything, dinner, everything included. How much do you think we spent at the end of the year on all the four conferences? Four conferences? Yeah. Well, of course, it depends on, you know, there's a very big difference between um, the Marriott in New Jersey and the St. Regis in New York. So, um, yeah, this was one of the best locations. We had DJ over there. Like, this was like. Now, are you talking about your expenses after your sponsors or before? All, all, all inclusive. Just give me a number you think this is what you might it might cost to do an event because I know you have done big events. An event like that is probably around three hundred grand per city. Yeah, two hundred grand per city. If you're going, if you're going super ding dong. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty, pretty close, right? I mean, like Atlanta was about 150K, San Francisco, right about 300K, right? And yeah. Terminus spent $0 on it, zero. Because every one of these sponsors, they were writing $50,000 to $25,000 uh, $25, checks because all they had to do was to show up at an event and do a keynote. $25,000 and get a whole uh, list of people, 250 captive audience sitting there and doing it. 
all of these things are like a no-brainer. But what they forgot, here's the fun part of building a category on industry conference. What they forgot was people were looking at us building the narrative in the marketplace. And then every time we, uh, we're done, we already had early access to who's attending that conference. So our sales team was already prepared what to talk to them about when they do meet them in the hallway, not trying to send them unsolicited emails and calls, but they were prepared what to do. And we were a booth just like everybody else. At the end of four uh, events, we were 100 customers done. Like we were already hitting a million in revenue the first year. The second year we hit $5 million. So we literally went on that, that, that was our go-to-market strategy was creating events. We're building an industry event, bringing competitors together that brought media together. We even got the analyst like serious decisions spoke at every one of these conferences. And guess what? They even paid to speak at the conference and have a booth. So we got so much love from the, the, I mean, I don't know if it was the right time at the right place or whatnot, but there was something going on there for that for that year, we just hit every checkbox there was, including the ABME's awards at the end of the year. I love everything about that story. <laughs> just so much fun to share that. Uh, now, uh, before I let you go, is there anything else about creating movements that you want to share? Well, I think one of the biggest things that companies that that could do, and I think they need to do a favor to themselves, and I, I hope you would agree on this. I feel like category creation is a choice. It's an absolute choice that every founder, CEO in that team has it. And it cannot be run as a marketing project or a sales project or a brand project. It's not a tactic. It is ultimately a choice that you have to make and you have to be, in your words, evangelistic about it. You, you, we cannot imagine Mark Binioff doing anything but that. We can't imagine Mother Teresa doing anything but that. So it's an evangelistic pursuit of doing something regardless of what the answer is. I feel, uh, Chris, so already fulfilled, even though I didn't have my big outcome yet from Terminus being you know, sold or IPO or whatever. I feel fulfilled because it has created over 100,000 jobs. And so from an evangelistic viewpoint, there's part of me that's already fulfilled, although my wife is still waiting for that big paycheck to happen one day and which, you know, checking in on that. Uh, but- <laughs> hey, can, can I interrupt you yeah. on that one for a second? So there's a, there's a fa you know, I, I'm continuously fascinated by dichotomy. So there's an incredible dichotomy about that, which I have lived through as well, which is when you haven't had a lot of outcome in your life, you know, if you grow up like I did, there's not a lot of outcome and there's a lot of economic struggle. When you begin to have some outcomes, or as we say in Canada, put some moose on the hood and you're like, hey, shit, I don't, we don't have to live in this piece of shit uh, apartment in the shittiest neighborhood in town. We can move to a less, way less shitty neighborhood, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you sort of move up an economic scale over time with, with either one big outcome or multiple outcomes along the way, which is more the case for me. But anyway... There's an interesting dichotomy here, which is you get to realize that as important as the outcomes are, and they are fucking important, I am not downplaying the outcomes. And if you're somebody who's grown up without outcomes yeah. and without economic security, um, when you achieve economic security and freedom in your life, that's an extraordinary achievement. And here's the interesting thing. Before you have outcomes, you are very clear. I was very fucking clear. The reward is the fucking outcome. Yeah. Once you have some outcome in your life, you, you realize you're like, that's amazing. And, and a life changing economic outcome 
is an extraordinary thing to live through. And the real reward is not the outcome. It's that you get to do it. Yeah. You get to do it. You get to be part of it. You get to change, see change happen in front of your eyes. Like Chris, I think that's like, I think that's what it, it's the fun part of it. Like we all know, none of us are on our grave. It won't be written that, hey, Sangram built an ABM category. I hope nobody writes that or says that, you know, when they when they speak as a eulogian and, you know, when I die. But I think what what is interesting is that we get to see change happen and we get to be part of the change. And in some cases, we get to lead the change. And I think category creation is is that you get to lead a change and you get to see it and it, it happens in front of you. And that's something that probably happens once in a lifetime. So I get goosebumps talking about it. At the same time, I tell everybody, it is not for everybody. It's a choice. And you have to be very clear about the choice you're about to make because you're going to be signed up for it. Whereas go to market, it's not a choice. You, you better figure out how the sales marketing and all these composition works and teams and stuff. Like every company needs that. But category creation is such a special thing. It's a choice. So maybe let's go here. So I agree with that. And I think... Sometimes the unspoken is louder than the spoken. The implication of what you're saying is only a very few companies should do category creation, which I actually agree with. Um, and this is for everybody else. I think you made that comment earlier, right? Yes. This is, this is for every company. It's almost a subcategory of it. Like, can you imagine any of the category leading companies that you have helped build not having a great process internally to have the handoffs within marketing sales and customer success they're calm, they're, how are they comped how are they incented how are they structured how how do they have rev ops so that they have a single source of truth as opposed to fighting where, where did the source come from like all these things you like that's what this book is it's I, I tell people all the time move this book is not an inspiration book at all it is a change book if you are not ready to go change don't read this book like, that's not good for you. But if it's not an inspiration book, you're not going to wake up, oh my God, this is amazing. I want to change. Go read Bernie Brown uh, if you wanted to do that. But if you want to read this book, uh, and I, I believe the same thing for Play Bigger, it is a change book. You and your executive team, the C-level, you have the ability to make the change in the organization. You need to transform your business. That's what these books are for. Otherwise, don't read it. Yes, my, so my big argument with you, of course, as you well know, is when we say go to market, what we're implying, because I start with the words, is there's a market over there and we need to go to it. And um, my argument is, why are you going to any existing market to begin with? Because the minute you are going to a market category... By definition, you're chasing some, something somebody else created. You're playing a game you can't win. That's the first argument I have. And then the second argument I have is, yeah, we got to do some going to market. I understand that. Some pushing, of course. Yeah. You got to do pushing. But why not do a lot of pulling? That is to say, make the market come to you. Yeah. And so um, uh, that's my argument. Have at it. <laughs> Well, I mean, if you look, the, the, everything we talked about was, in in a way, a combination of that, right? We were going to different cities. So if you think about going to different markets with a, with a capital M, right, the market is big enough, it's, it's, it's out there, and then creating the market in those cities. Because 
sitting in Atlanta, there was no way anybody was going to find out about Terminus. There was just no way about ABM. So we literally take the same cast of 20 people with us in seven or five, sorry, in the first year, four, and then seven the next year, but four different cities in the first year to build the category itself. So our go-to-market strategy, if there is, you know, if you use that word uh, phrase, I would say our go-to-market strategy was going to different markets and actually educating them about this, that there is a new and a better way to do it. Therefore, creating the, the small M, the market um, within that. So I look at this as that that was our go-to-market strategy. Some companies like Calendly, um, which I'm sure you're familiar with, like does does the calendaring event, calendaring of uh, schedules. There was a product-led growth. So Tope, who also started at the same place I started at Atlanta Tech Village, having a similar desk like I did, and I saw him right next door the whole time. Uh, and now I hate him because he got a phenomenal company going on, and and like he 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 sleeps every night and wakes up with thousand more customers. I'm like, I would love to do that. Like I don't know why I didn't come up with something like this, but he is building a. A, a product-led, so his product sells itself and his sales team is so small, it only goes in when they find more than 100 people within a company using their product to sell the enterprise deal. Very different game. And, and then there's another company like Bombara, which is a which is a data company. They said, we're not going to go and create a category. What we're going to do is become a pipe for all the companies in MarTech so that they can provide data to all of us. So they became the intent provider that we sell. So now they just hired all these companies like Terminus to be their sales team. So in many ways, what I have learned is- By the way, so what you just ways. described yeah. is their category strategy. Is their category strategy, exactly. So, I feel so like they said, we're not going to build a category, but we're building a category yes. <laughs> by being the pipe between all the marketing technology. So they may not think they're building a category, but that's exactly what they fucking did. And by the way, just as a side note, product-led growth is another one. It's bullshit. There is no such thing as product-led growth. Products do not drive growth on their own. It doesn't happen. What has to happen is people have to connect with what it is. Yeah. Right. They have to connect with the category of what it's doing. And so in that sense, if they understand the story of why the product's important, that is to say the problem it solves and why this is an elegant solution, then it feels like the product is growing by itself. Yeah. But um, it took 300 years for people fit to figure out the wheel could be used for transportation. So uh, product led growth is the biggest misnomer. Well, the biggest. It's one of the biggest misnomers. And it's out there all over the place. And so what's interesting to me is that as we have grown Terminus now about 50 million revenue, I feel like we have gone through these several valleys of debt. Having built a category, I still felt like, oh my God, we're building an entirely new business every $10 million. It's just crazy. And to me, this book is almost not just recognizing we have gone through it, but for everybody. So I feel like because I've done the category creation, I get the get to write about the other unsexy part of the business because the sexy part is the category creation. The unsexy part is figuring out how your marketing, sales, customer success, rev ops, and all these teams work together. How do you calm them? How do you make them? They move along with and they evolve as the company evolves. How do you do multi-product deals that makes companies actually make a great NRR? Like a company that I've been investing in is it like CEOs still wonder about this. If you're a $50 million company with 75 NRR versus a $30 million company with 120% NRR, what's better? 
And some of the CEOs will say, well, 50 million is better. I'm like, no, a $30 million company is better because they have 120% NRR. So you need to build a better process to do that. To me, those are the things that I've learned as much as I love category building. And as I said, it's a choice, it's a conscious method. It's like, while all of that is happening, the internal stuff has to work. And that's what this book is really, really trying to address. Yes, absolutely. And um, the non-sexy part matters a ton. Uh, It's true that category design stuff can feel a lot sexier, but if you don't know how to make the numbers, if you don't know how to scale the sales force, to your point, if you don't, here's another one. There's so many startups today, particularly B2C startups, where they just decide we're not fucking doing customer support. You can't call us. We don't have a fucking phone number. Yeah. And you can, you can fill out a form on our website, which is, you know, on lockhead.com, the email address you send shit to is blackhole at lockhead.com. Because if you have a, you know, here, I'll, I'll pick on one that's successful. Wix. Try getting customer support from fucking Wix. It's not possible. Right? You got to threaten them. To put it on <laughs> like Twitter or social. Com- yeah. No, that's exactly right. You have to go on social media. Primarily, Twitter is very effective, and you have to say these assholes don't support their customers. And all of a sudden, you'll get some kind of a response. And so my point is, you're absolutely right. By not learning to do, and I'll call them what they are, the basics. Yeah. And learn how to build and scale a business over time. And learn to your point, particularly in the early stages, when you go zero to 10 is a massive change. Yeah. 10 to 20, again, you know, every $10 million, to your point, is a huge jump in terms of the, the sophistication of your business. And, um, you know, you've got to be able, you know, with all this talk of, of blitz scaling and all this shit, yeah. you've got to be able to figure out how to build this um, scalable infrastructure, processes, uh, et cetera. Or, if you, frankly, you'll build the category and somebody who can execute will take it from you. That's exactly what I was about to say, Chris, is that this, there's a lot of companies who created red carpet for other companies to come in and take over. The second uh, company, whoever is the fast follower, can come in and take over a category immediately because they're like, hey, thank you for building it. Thank you for getting funding. Because here's another thing. There is no such thing as category of one. And, I've, I've, and that's one of the biggest reasons why I got competitors to come and join forces to build the ABM categories because I was like, if I were to do this by myself, I, am, I don't have a $100 million uh, revenue mar- like market out there. I don't, oh, I don't funding or anything like that. I don't have a pedigree to just go and say, hey, we're doing that. Like, you know, Mark Benioff starts another thing. He can just go do it and say it, and it's a category. I have none of that. So how do I do it as somebody who is just, inconsequential in a category business and building company and doesn't have the pedigree. And to me, the only way I could think about at that time was that, well, they're all spending $25,000, $50,000 here and there. If we pull it together and authentically put an industry conference together, it automatically creates a category because there is no such, if I go and say on the rooftop, Terminus is the best product in the world, so does everybody say that? Nobody says we have a mediocre, like really bad, like kind of really not good product. Nobody says that. Everybody says they have the best product in the world. And and here's another thing. People say, oh, we really don't have competitors. Like that's BS because that's not true. If you don't have competitors overall, I don't think you're solving the real problem then because there need to be other people trying to get into it. So to me, one of the things I've learned in the process is that 
we created people into cat uh, like competitors i called this guy uh, his name is chris too he's he lived in stockholm and he was doing basic advertising for um uh, for some target accounts i'm like you are an abm company he's like i am i'm like yes you are and i flew him over here to speak and give it an international feel for the entire conference hey even the world globally this is changing right you got to market this stuff so you really, we really needed to build that. So I firmly believe there is no category of one. And the sooner you get more people involved in it, the bigger and faster the category grows. Absolutely agree. Sangram, is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap? No, man, uh, I love it. If anybody hasn't signed up for your newsletter, I don't know what they're doing. They got to do it because it is it's getting good and good. And I can't wait for you to drop the Facebook one because I think you're going to, I saw your LinkedIn and I think it's going to have a lot of really cool things in it. So I'm looking forward to reading it. Well, thank you, Sangram. And I, I appreciate you being such an enthusiastic supporter of Category Pirates. I'll just, I'll tell you, it has become the most uh, unexpected joy in my uh, professional life. Okay. I've never had a creative partnership uh, like I have with uh, with Cole and with Eddie. Um the, they're two incredible guys. Uh, it's highly, highly unusual to have a trio. You know, four of us wrote Play Bigger. Yeah. Um, but it was a one and done kind of a thing. In this case, you know, the three of us are together every single week, mm. working throughout the week uh, on, you know, big ideas and trying to write and do research and, and all of that stuff. And uh, it really is an incredible thing to be yeah. uh, working with such amazing guys and the response has been uh, shocking. Yeah. Absolutely shocking to me. Well, good. Um, good always stands out. Different always stands out. And the what you're doing with the books that you're already putting on Amazon and thing like, I think it's just going to be like a new way of thinking about it. Uh, because, man, I have been dreading. I still haven't created my own newsletter because I hate the idea of creating a newsletter about me, me, me. It got to have narrative in it. It got to have story in it. So I still haven't created my own newsletter. So you have given me something to think about. That is like, let's have a dialogue. Let's dissect something. Let's do something that's tremendous value. So people would like, oh, this is worth signing up for. Matter is mat- paying for, as a matter of fact. Yes. And interesting, just a couple of interesting notes on that. So, um, you know, when we first started, we heard stupidities like, ah, it's too late. Everybody has a newsletter. It's a uh, newsletter. Okay. And nobody's going to pay for a business newsletter. It's free. Okay. It's too long. <laughs> nobody's going to, it's too fucking long. And in the beginning, we started off, we were about 3,000 words. So we didn't, of course, listen to any of that bullshit. Yeah. We said, we wanna, we're going to create the newsletter we want to read. Yeah. But there's a very wild thing that happened. For the first five months, our average letter size was around 3,000 words. And then something naturally happened. Matter of fact, I was talking to Eddie and Cole about this the other day. I said, guys, did we make a conscious decision to go from 3,000 words to like six to 8,000 words? <laughs> And we, we didn't. We wrote one letter right around um, the 4th of July on the topic of languaging. And it was much longer than normal. And we didn't really talk about that. We just wrote what we wanted to write. And ever since then, the length has kind of um, moved up. So that's point A. Point B, we were getting feedback from people. Wow, this is a very long newsletter. Yeah. 
And it was already long at 3,000 <laughs> words once a week. Never mind 8,000 words or 6,000 words or whatever. So we put a little modifier at the top of it. And we I forget exactly the words we said, but we said, hey, by the way, um, this is not a long newsletter. It's a short book. And you get one a week. Naming, framing, and claiming, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, our growth curve was nice, but it, it did this, like, like straight up into the right as soon as we went from 3,000 to 6,000 words. Yeah. And as soon as we said, it's not a newsletter, it's, an, it's a mini book. And so it's just to your point on different, to your point on counterintuitive, to your point on learning from mistakes, learning as you go, um, it, it would have been virtually impossible for us to predict that you could create a mini book newsletter that would, be, that would hit the top 10 in six months um, yeah. that is so fucking long. Yeah. But that's what happened. Now, I think that's, that, that's, so I'm a framework guy. So I love creating frameworks. If everything I've done, like Flip My Funnel is a framework uh, in the, the ABM is B2B book. I wrote Team, the Target, Engage, Activate, Measure was a framework. In Move, it's Marketing Operations, Velocity, and Expansion. It's a framework. So everything is a framework. So I even like stuff that I've created at home, there are lots of frameworks of like how we live life and how we talk about stuff. So I think about taking inspiration for what you're doing is like next year, I want to do like a framework, like every month, I just go deep in a framework that will help people understand the idea uh, in brief, then a framework so that it can be applicable so they could do something about it and give them like self-assessment of sorts and then let them go from it. And if it's only 12 newsletters uh, or, you know, articles I ever write in my life, I'll be fine with it. But I want them to be a good one that people can do something about it. It's fantastic. You should. Of all the people I know who should have a newsletter and doesn't, you're at the top of that list. The other interesting thing you said, and I think this is something that marketers miss, frameworks. Frameworks give people, if you will, scaffolding for thinking. It's challenging for all of us, of course, myself included, Yeah. when presented with new and different ideas to conceptualize those ideas, to internalize those ideas, and, and more, most importantly, probably, it, to take that new thinking and try to play with it, try to apply it. And so a framework, even if it's a made-up acronym that's yeah. a little silly, it, it, it's a leap-off point for anchoring your thinking in this new way. And um, anybody who's ever said, oh, I, I never thought about it that way, has experienced a context shift. Yeah. And our belief is that context is more important than content. And from a marketing perspective, and I think this is true in B2C and B2B, new frameworks are one of the most underutilized ways of helping people get the power of something new and different. And you really have, uh, so this is building to a question. Did you come to this naturally? Did you figure this out? How did you land on the power of frameworks, Ingram? I mean, I honestly would always be upset with, with, with being inspired and not being able to make it practical enough to do something about it. So, you know, you, you go to these talks sometimes and you listen to somebody like, hey, you should do this in life. And, and, you know, here's what I've done. And I'm like, OK, great. That worked for you. How can I make it work? So I felt like there is a way that I understood things to make complex simple 
and make have some freedom for people within the framework so that they can understand and do it their way. So every time I would think about something, I would immediately, my, the way my brain works is what is the easiest way that I can people to give, get people 80% there? That's it. Like, I mean, because there's no framework that's perfect. I recognize it. People recognize it. So I'm not trying to create a perfect thing that will just work 100% of the time. It's like, what is, what is the 80% of the way path so people can take that idea and do something about it? So when I talk about ABM, the flip my funnel was the 80% of the way. It's not perfect. Like, you know, when you flip it and it's like, it's not, you don't generate more customers when you put in few customers. I think people get the idea, but they get the fact that, oh, you can expand the revenue with the existing customers thereby have more revenue. So yes, it can actually grow. So it took people 80% of the way there and allowed them to think even further and apply it for their own personal business or life. So I have about... Uh, 15 different frameworks, I think about, yeah, about 15 different frameworks. I call it the business of marketing frameworks, the business of leadership frameworks, and the business of life frameworks, because I think we're always in the business of something. And and I've just loved from last seven years or so, I would always like, okay, how do we hire people? I call them, uh, and this might be too much for, for now, but like I call, I always hire people in and put people in three different boxes. Either they're dreamers, or doers or drivers. One of them have to be there. So for example, if I'm building a new team, I need a dreamer. I may get the two same people, two people with the exact same skill set, but if one is a if, if one is a dreamer and one is a doer, I want a dreamer because I'm building something new and I want this person to dream something. But now if you have a 50 people team and customer success, and now I need somebody to come in and help now. And, and it, the, the, the problem with that department or function is that they don't have a sense of urgency. Then I need a driver head of customer success. I don't need a dreamer. I don't need a doer. I need a driver. So that's how I've hired all along. So I have a framework around dreamer, doer, driver. How do you get to peak performance in life is hire people not based on their skill set, but who they are really and what do you need for that time. So I have these I just think about these as frameworks. I cannot go through the uh, the Enneagram and and or the DGINF. Like there's no way I'm going to be able to remember, retain, and do anything with it. All the strength finders. I just need to very quickly figure out: Is this a dreamer, doer, or driver? What do I need? So I can tell people, recruiters, like I need a dreamer for this job. I don't need a doer or a driver. Like so, I tell this, and it makes it super easy for people to to figure out if that's a good role for them or not. Yes. Yes, that fucking that. And the number of companies that do it is, is really de minimis. They might have some kind of a architecture diagram around their products and a way to sort of scale into their products and how to buy them by this first and that second. Da, 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 da. They might have those kinds of things, but um, uh, ecosystem diagrams, category diagrams, uh, maturity models, these sorts of things, most companies don't. Uh, build them. And even on the B2B side, they don't give people a new framework for thinking about something, which then opens them up. And um, you know who might be the greatest framework creator ever? Who's that? Depending on how you want to think about it, either God or Moses <laughs> with the Ten Commandments. Yeah. We gave, gave a clear framework. And whenever I'm working on one of these frameworks, the interest, the, the fun, you know, all kidding aside, when you stand up and say, you know, here's the, 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 uh, move framework. Yeah. People get their fucking pens and they get ready to, yeah. and they start their ears perk up. Right. 
And I'm always reminded of that uh, Monty Python scene where, where Moses comes down and he's got the three tablets. Yeah. You know what I'm yeah, talking yeah, about? Yeah, And he trips and, then and falls breaks and he one. says, here are the 15, oh, the 10 commandments, right? <laughs> and, and the funny thing is, if you say it with authority and with passion and enthusiasm and assuming your framework isn't fucking stupid, yeah. people are going to go, wow. Yeah. Um, and yet it's one of the most underutilized things. Yeah. And you and, and the, the finale point on all of this is that I believe the reason ABM worked, the flip my funnel worked, or this book has become um, uh, the go-to-market book is because I believe in it. I believe in it so much. There's not an ounce of me that would be like, oh, I don't believe in this stuff. I'm just making it up as I go to just sound great. No, no, no. I truly believe what I'm saying, and I think that's what really what people see and feel. And if I believe in it with all my heart and passion, I think people will follow it. I'm like, all right, if you believe it, I don't know if it's the right answer or not, but if you believe so much in it, I will, I will give it a try. I'll give it a shot. And I think that is really important. People have to really believe what they're putting out in the world. If they don't believe themselves, people can sniff that up like, like that. Well, and right there, uh, my friend, is the difference, the delta between missionaries and mercenaries. And all legendary entrepreneurs, all legendary innovators, and certainly all legendary category designers are missionaries. Amen. All right, Sangram, is there anything else? That's it. If we keep going on anything else. I mean, we could could fucking go forever, I know, but... No, I think it's been such a fun, so fun working with you. And uh, again, uh, I look forward to your newsletters every, every time they come out because I know it's a book. Well, I'm stoked that you're reading and I really appreciate you writing Move. I really appreciate you including me in the fun and the marketing of the book. I, Not to be too corny, but uh, I'm very, very proud of, of what you've done uh, you. overall with your career uh, and specifically having having been roped into being one of those 500 people. Uh, <laughs> it's It's been fun being uh, a part of the success of, of Move. And uh, I think you've done something really cool. Thank and so I really appreciate our friendship. And more importantly, I really appreciate what you're doing in the world. Thank you. And, and people who are listening to this, maybe that's what we do. Just if you there was anything that you loved about our conversation, just DM me on LinkedIn and I'll send you a, a signed copy of the book. How's that as a as a guest of this show? Wow. Wow. DM you on LinkedIn for a signed copy of Move. I will send them a signed copy of the book. No matter where they are, they will get a signed copy from me and my co-author. Who, who will it be signed by? Uh, I'll be definitely. I mean, I got a whole pile here. Like, literally, I'm like, figure it out and sign it and send it. Because my goal is to give away 10,000 plus copies of the book. Uh, not only what was sold, but to give away so that it just, again, becomes a staple out there for, for companies to see. Another great example of radical generosity works all right dm sangram on linkedin and uh we'll make sure that your linkedin profile url is in the show notes if people want to go to it let's do it all right brother thank you so much thank you stay legendary well there he is my buddy sangram vajri isn't he awesome and uh, his new book is out i highly recommend you check it out it's called move the four question go to market framework also want to let you know that uh, Al Ramadan is coming back. He's the co-founder of Play Bigger Advisors, who uh, we actually started the company together and we wrote the book together. And he's really a brother from another mother. And uh, on episode 127, Al and I unpacked Rivian's, what was at the time, 
upcoming IPO. And Al's coming back. And now we will unpack what's happened since they went public and what we can learn from it because they IPO'd the way category designers IPO. They wrote their S1 in a very, very specific way. And they were genius at how they framed their category potential and TAM, total addressable or total available market. So we'll get into all of that, Al and I, uh, on an upcoming episode. All right. We would like to thank our good friends at Atrenet, A-T-R-E dot N-E-T. If you want a legendary B2B website and you're a Silicon Valley tech company, check out Atrenet. And they have an approach, a program called the Rapid Relaunch. And so if you're thinking about uh, getting a new website up, um, now's the time to check out atre.net. All right. I also need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. And this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. Don't forget to consult your lawyer, doctor, shaman, mystic, yoga instructor, spiritual advisor, and of course, category designer before you act on anything you heard on today's episode. Also, uh, you should know that your spouse texted and said, it's okay. You can go ahead and subscribe to Category Pirates right now at (laughs) CategoryPirates.com. Also, I must warn you, the creators of this odd cast uh, may have been consuming libations. And don't forget, I got thrown out of high school. We are produced and edited by the GOAT, Jason DeFilippo. And if by chance you're considering a career change in the, in the near to medium term, go to Substack and type in The Pivoteer, because Jason, who's had many successful career pivots over the years, is writing a legendary newsletter himself called, you guessed it, The Pivoteer on Substack. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do legendary technical execution around here, and they build Lockhead.com. Show notes are by GM Simon. All right, that's it. Thank you so much for hanging out. Please stay safe. Stay legendary. And the thought I'll leave you with comes from George Lewis, who said, Only with absolute fearlessness can we slay the dragons of mediocrity that invade our gardens. <laughs>